It would be so helpful to have your Bibles open. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're looking at Acts chapter 15, so that which we just heard read. And there's also an outline on the back of the news with some translation points in uh, Dinka and in Korean. So if that's of help, please make use of that. But right now, let's, let's pray. Gracious Father, please would you be at work in the power of your Spirit helping us to understand and rely on your grace more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. The early church had to solve a lot of problems on the run. Now, of course, none of those were a surprise to God, but many of those problems were a big surprise to all the people. Many years ago now, when I was part of a little web startup, we went through different seasons of rapid growth. And this, of course, was a pretty exciting time to be involved, to put your work out there and see it being used. But whenever there was a spike in usage or whenever our app was downloaded in a new country, that brought with it a load of challenges, a whole heap of problems that were unforeseen to us, that were totally unanticipated in our planning. We, we just didn't see them coming, and so we had to work through those problems one after the other. They needed to be resolved. In the early church, as the gospel goes out, they're facing challenges on a whole different scale. Not only are there issues associated with growth, not only are there issues associated with opposition, but as the gospel goes out to both Jew and Gentile, Many are left wondering, even debating, what is really required, what is essential in order to be saved. As the good news goes out, clearly now to all people, not just the Jews, what really makes for an authentic Christian? That's actually the ultimate question behind the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. That's what the debating. Now, when we hear that the church is debating, many people might say, well, that's hardly surprising. Christians can never agree on anything. They're such a disagreeable bunch. But actually, this isn't a trivial matter that just relates to pettiness or personality. But this is faithful people earnestly working out and working through the implications of the good news that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord of all. Remember, the very first followers of Jesus were Jews. Jesus largely, not exclusively, but largely spent his time ministering to the Jewish people. But now as the, the gospel goes out further and further, the, the implications of the good news, of course, is for all people, more and more Gentiles are becoming believers. But as more and more Gentiles become believers, they face a theological crossroad. Do these Gentile believers need to adopt the boundary markers and some of the practices of Judaism? Or is faith alone in Jesus sufficient to be saved? That's the question. Now, of course, there's been inklings of this question bubbling under the surface for some time. We saw some of that arise in Acts chapter 10. But now, as things really reach ahead, really a watershed moment, all the bigwigs have showed up. So you've got Peter, Paul, Barnabas and James, apostles, elders, Pharisees and more. 
And as they work through the question, what is required to be saved, not only do we hear very clearly, this is a spoiler alert, it's by grace alone, but we also witness grace in action as faithful people work through weighty matters faithfully. We see the cause for conflict, basis for unity, and process for resolution. First, we witness the cause for conflict. So let's really try to get to the bottom of what the issue is. So verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. We see that same assertion really reiterated in verse 5. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So that's the claim that the Jewish believers are asserting, which we see results in, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Okay, so the, the presenting issue, very straightforward, the presenting issue is the Jewish believers teaching that Gentiles must be circumcised and obey aspects of the Mosaic law, but actually beneath the surface, the underlying issue is, the question right at the heart is, what do people need to do in order to be saved? So no, they're not debating if salvation is through Jesus or even if salvation is available to all. That's agreed. They're debating whether or not other things are also required. Is it grace alone by which we're saved? Or grace plus something else, sort of a gospel plus something else. That, of course, still happens today. Some people say, yes, you receive salvation simply by putting your trust in Jesus, but you also need to, you also need to tithe in a certain way or practice a type of prayer or have a particular spiritual experience or do these certain things. That's gospel plus. Now, some of those things, they might be very helpful in our following of Jesus, but they're not essential for salvation. And of course, the problem is that immediately when you add a condition to grace, when you add a condition to the gospel, you're actually subtracting from it. You're undermining what grace really is. For grace is a gift that is received through faith. There's no strings attached when it comes to grace. In this case, some Jewish believers were saying, in order to be saved, you need faith in Jesus plus circumcision and submission to the law of Moses. Now, circumcision, that was an identity marker reminding people that they belong to God, reminding them of God's covenant. And the laws, especially the food laws, reminded them of being set apart for God's purposes. So are these things necessary for salvation. There are basically three views in contention. Uh, some thought the laws and circumcision shouldn't apply to any believers. Some thought the laws and circumcision should only apply to Jewish believers. Some thought the laws and circumcision should apply to all believers. Okay, so they're the three points of contention, the three views. Now, I know we can kind of want to rush ahead to the 
the resolution of what the answer is, but I think it's really important for us to note and to underline that the cause of the conflict is not simply because people are trying to be difficult. I wonder if you ever assume that, you know, when you get into some sort of theological debate, it's really easy just to assume they're such a difficult person. In fact, sometimes it's really convenient to assume that, that the other person's just difficult, because it gives us a, a type of permission to then just be dismissive and not really commit to working through things graciously. Now, I have no doubt that sometimes when people get into theological debate, it might not be for the most honourable reasons. And of course, that's not really helpful. But it's also not helpful to always assume in the face of disagreement that that's the case. I wonder when you're in that situation where there's some sort of debate about some substantive matter of faith, some substantive matter of the Bible, it's just so easy to, to question the person's motive and just assume that they're just being obstructive. It's so easy just to question the person's capacity, you know, assume that they don't and can't understand. It's so easy to assume or question the person's method that they haven't really thought things through or they don't have the same value on the Bible to inform their decisions as, as you might. I wonder if in the face of theological disagreement if you've ever thought that, to think they're difficult or their view is dumb or that it's being unfaithful to God's word. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that actually I've thought all three sometimes at the same time. Now, that's not to say that people can't be difficult or that people can't have flaky views or always treat God's word well, but I think it's a helpful starting point to assume people are trying to be faithful until there's evidence they're not. It doesn't mean adopting a position that whatever is true for you is true, whatever is true for me is true. That clearly can't be the case. But when we recognise the issue is important and then commit to working things through, phenomenal things can happen. That's what we witness in this very chapter. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they were pretty busy, uh, but when they heard about this, it's incredible, they recognise how important it is, and so they go to Jerusalem, along with the others, to work it through. I am so thankful that in the face of dispute and debate... Paul and Barnabas didn't just ignore it, they didn't just dismiss it, nor did the others, but they go to Jerusalem, everyone gets together to consider it. So with a clarity of what really is at the cause of the conflict and a commitment to work it through, we see that they could do so because they had a solid base for unity. So verse 3, the church sent them on their way and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Now, it's so easy to miss, but did you notice that everyone actually seems to be in agreement on a number of things? There's some big disagreements, but note the things they're in agreement of. They seem to be in agreement that salvation is necessary, that we all need saving. They seem to be in agreement that salvation is through Jesus, that he's 
the Messiah, that we cannot save ourselves, nor is there any other way. And they seem to be in agreement that salvation is available to all, that both Jews and Gentiles can be saved. I love that the Jewish believers earnestly want to know how the Gentiles can be saved. That's a radical shift. Sure, they are yet to see that it's through grace alone, but they know and they're even proclaiming that salvation is necessary through Jesus and available to all. Now, don't get me wrong, they definitely need some theological scrubbing up, okay? There's some really important errors to be corrected. But this provides a basis for unity. I love that when Barnabas and Paul tell people in Phoenicia and Samaria that Gentiles have been converted, that is, they've been saved, that all the believers are very glad. I love that when they arrive in Jerusalem, they're welcomed. I love that when they reported everything that God had been doing, the assembly is silent, presumably in awe. I love that people don't seem blindingly zealous for their point of view. I love that people don't seem envious of what they hear God is doing through others. I love that these people seem earnestly gospel-hearted. How amazing is that? What an incredible basis for unity as they come to work out serious issues. What an incredible reminder that when we enter into debate about substantive matters of faith, the most powerful platform is not only agreeing on the importance of the need, but being unified in the news that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord and joined in mission, which the same Lord Jesus has entrusted to us. Over the years here at St. Bart's, I've been continuously encouraged to see the way in which people from very different backgrounds who might even disagree on issues that are not central to salvation have really enjoyed an incredible unity because they've been resolute in matters of first importance and active in participating in mission together. Now, please don't mistake me. The believers who are proclaiming a type of gospel plus, that they're in desperate need to have that corrected, to, to work that through. But this was all new for them. It was unfolding before their very eyes. But because they shared a basis in Jesus and for Jesus, they could begin to work it through together. Many years ago now, I had an interview with Sandy Miller. Sandy Miller is the former vicar of Holy, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, and Sandy actually started the Alpha course before Nikki really pioneered its outward focus. And when Sandy was interviewed, he was asked, how can Alpha possibly work across so many different denominations? How can it work in so many different nations and languages across almost every single culture when there are so many points of difference? The person said, how can it possibly work? And Sandy simply said something along the lines of, because we focus on who Jesus is and we share in the mission that he's entrusted to us. Now, that doesn't mean that every church needs to do everything together. It is also doesn't mean that there won't be important points of difference. Of course there will be. But it does mean 
that when we're clear that all that we do is about Jesus and for Jesus, when we really can identify what is of prime gospel importance, we can work through all sorts of other differences in how we express our faith. And it's with that basis for unity that a process for resolution unfolds. So verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So how do they discover what God wants? Now, at one level, the process is really simple. They met, listened to each other, made a decision, and then decided what happens next. Brilliant. That's easy, right? So we can just go away and do that. Is that how it works? I'm sure you know that as important as that process is, that if you've ever had a meeting to try and solve a complex problem, you know that a decision, let alone a good decision, is hardly guaranteed by simply meeting and listening. I mean, you can give it a shot this week, but my hunch is it doesn't always work out that way. So what makes this one different? We know that their hearts seem set on what God is doing and what God desires. That's already evident by the fact of their basis of unity being in Jesus. But it's here as they're assembled, we so, see so clearly that they long not simply to push their own agenda, but to earnestly seek out God's agenda of what God desires. Not only are Peter, Paul and Barnabas and James all in agreement, but those who are listening, all those people gathered, they're, they're taking it in, they're silent in response to all that they hear. We're getting a sense that they're primarily interested in what God desires. We see that actually unfold in three rounds. So why are we saved by grace alone? Why are the Gentiles accepted without other conditions? Well, we see round one, when Peter addresses the assembly. Note the emphasis, verse 7, God made a choice. Verse 8, God showed them he accepted them. God gave the Holy Spirit. God purified their hearts. And verse 9, God did not discriminate. Why are the Gentiles accepted without other conditions? Because round two, when Paul and Barnabas arise, verse 12, God has done signs and wonders among the Gentiles. Why are the Gentiles accepted without other conditions? Round three, when James speaks up, not only affirming what Simon, that is Simon Peter, has said, but also because how they've witnessed God at work. But even more, how they've witnessed God at work lines up with what God has said in his word. That's what the quote from the prophets, so verse, verses 16 to 18 is all about. It's actually an amalgamation from a number of prophetic texts, actually. But it's all confirming that what they have witnessed is in keeping with what God has said in his word. That's what we do as the people of God, that when we're trying to discern things, as our primary desires are saying what God desires, we take what we observe or we take what we think and we keep coming back to 
and holding up against God's word. That's the ultimate measure. And therefore, the resolution, according to Peter, is clear. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So what is the path to salvation? Simply grace alone. And note that it's not just true for the Gentiles, but therefore it is also true for the Jewish believers. It's grace alone. Not only is it in keeping to everything that God has promised, not only is it confirmed in how God spoke to the likes of Peter, but it's evidenced, we're told, in the fact that the Holy Spirit was given to all who believed. It means it's unnecessary for the Gentiles to become Jewish. It means that the circumcision and, and the law of Moses are not essential for salvation. When Peter says, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? His, his key point is not simply saying that the law was burdensome and oppressive, which of course it was, but that's not his key point. His, his key point is that the law is actually unable to be the means of salvation. It was never able to be the means of salvation. And if God gave his spirit to these uncircumcised, non-Torah-keeping, but, but believing Gentiles, just in accordance with what God had already promised, who are we to stand in the way? So you can see there's, there's no gospel plus. There's nothing additional to do. There's nothing else to say. There's no other rules to follow. It's the most amazing news to all those who are present, to all those to whom the news was dispatched, but it's also the most extraordinary news for us. We are saved not because of any past, present or future performance. We're given God's spirit, not because of our law-keeping, but because of God's grace. Grace that's received simply by faith in Jesus alone. We're liberated from trying to earn our own salvation. We're liberated for trying to save ourselves. Verse 20. Indeed, we should write to them, this is James, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So when you hear this, having just heard them affirm that we're saved by grace alone, that's crystal clear, right? And, and now intending to actually even affirm, confirm that in writing and dispatch that outward, so there can't be any confusion... It can seem a little inconsistent, just a little tad inconsistent now to tackle these instructions on, on the end, or you can be suspicious that there's some sort of sneaky gospel plus strategy, but that's not what is happening here. Clearly, James is not adding these things on as conditions for salvation. But it seems that they are not only concerned with what God desires, that's their primary concern, what does God desire, but they're also being sensitive to how this is going to impact others and their gospel witness. So this list, in many ways, are the things that would have been most repulsive 
to the Jewish believers. And it would have actually been very difficult for those Jewish believers who intended to keep the practices, which was not going to be prohibited from them, it would have been very difficult for them to share table fellowship with Gentiles without this provision. They're the sort of things you'd actually also find most commonly in pagan temples at the time. So you can understand why they'd be so repulsive. And it's almost like James is saying, encouraging a sensitivity to fellow believers, you don't need to become a Jew to be saved, but you also don't need to go back to your pagan ways. And everyone present, they agreed. As they rejoiced that it is by God's grace alone that we're saved, God's grace was at work through them too. I think this is a mighty act of God. There are likely things that the church of every single generation will need to debate. I think that's inevitable. And we need to, each and every time, stop and ask, is this a gospel issue? What is critical is that our main longing would be for what God desires and that we would test our will against God's word. That no matter what the challenge or what the question is that we face, that we would keep the main thing, the good news of God's grace in Christ, that we would keep the main thing, the main thing. There's no gospel plus. What is required to be saved? It's simply by grace alone. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the extraordinary news that we are saved not by any of our efforts, past, present or future, that we're not saved by any law-keeping, but that we are simply saved by your grace which has been poured out in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that in response to that grace that we can receive your grace simply through faith, simply by putting our trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would help prevent us from adding any conditions onto the gospel for ourselves or for others, but that we individually and as a community would so clearly proclaim and show with our lives that it's through grace alone that we are saved. Lord, how we thank you so much for your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.